0: Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 7. Conversation with a Friend I thought we'd try something a little different this week. And therefore, I've asked a friend of mine, Alan, to join me in the podcast. He and I worked together many years ago in Glasgow, and it's been far too long since we last spoke. I've asked him to share a couple of memories with us in this podcast. So, Alan, uh, perhaps I could hand over to you and uh, you could tell me a little bit about some of your memories of our time at York Hill.
1: Hello, Chris, and thanks for uh, asking me to, to have a chat with you in this way. It is indeed a, a long, long time, more years than I care to remember since we since we worked together at York Hill. In fact, I, I think when I was thinking back, uh, I realised that our children are now the same ages as we were when we worked together all these years ago, which um, is always something that makes you think twice. However, back in those... Uh, york hill days it was it was certainly very eventful as I'm, as I'm sure you can recall the we worked mainly as registrars initially in a, a neonatology unit and then when we really grew up we got to move on to york hill where we were both at the same time medical registrars from the medical receiving rota things then i think were a A bit different than they are now. There were, were, I think, four registrars altogether that covered the entire week, uh, including covering each other when we were on holiday. And uh, we were responsible for all the the medical admissions and looking after the the patients in the the medical wards in New York Hill, certainly from five o'clock at night till nine o'clock next morning.
0: Are there any days that you can remember that really stick in your mind from that time?
1: Well, yes, there are quite a few days, to be honest, for all sorts of reasons. You mentioned, and I was listening to one of your previous podcasts, and you you mentioned uh, the problems that we used to encounter with, or we still do encounter, but much less so than in the past, but with meningitis, and particularly bacterial meningitis. Back in the 80s, there were three major causes of bacterial meningitis that we all worried about the meningococcal hemophilus, and pneumococcal meningitis and I remember one very eventful receiving day when I managed to admit a full house um, I had a meningococcal meningitis in the afternoon hemophilus meningitis in the evening and at three or four o'clock in the early hours of the next morning I was called to see a baby who had come in through the A&E department who was clearly very unwell. And as it turns out, it was a a pneumococcal meningitis. Management in those days, of course, was a bit different. Um, All three were looked after on general medical wards by myself and uh, an SHO. And I don't think any senior staff got to see them until the post-receiving ward round next day. When thankfully, all three had responded fairly rapidly to antibiotic treatment. But um, it was certainly a Eventful, and I suppose in retrospect, it's probably more scary looking back at it. At the time, it was what we did, and we just got on with it. But I think, like a lot of things, you, you look back and think, "Gosh, how did we how did we deal with that?" Then I think, of course, as you were saying in your previous podcasts, we don't see as much of this bacterial meningitis nowadays, thanks to the advantages of um, vaccination. And in particular, vaccination against haemophilus and pneumococcal disease. So whilst vaccination undoubtedly has been a great a great step forward, it certainly is not on very rare occasions without its problems. And it reminds me of a another infant that I admitted one evening, it was a five month old child that I was asked to see in the A and E department. And the history was all incredibly vague. Um, She'd been brought to A&E by her mum. I think the the infant's name was was Sarah, we'll call her. And according to mum, Sarah just hadn't been right for a couple of days. One of these very vague histories, which doesn't really tell you a lot, but which sometimes makes the the hairs on the back of your neck stand and end a little bit, because it just doesn't seem right. that Mum was just absolutely adamant that, The baby, Sarah, had been a bit quieter than usual, um, was still feeding, but not maybe quite as much as usual, but couldn't really tell me anything more specific. And I examined her on A&E and frankly couldn't find at that point anything much more specific and really didn't think too much about it. And really, I think at one stage I was thinking, well, I don't think there's much going on here. Maybe this child could just go home. But... As so often happens over the years, there was this little guardian angel sitting on my shoulder that said, no, there's just something not quite right here. So as we could perhaps in those days do a bit more easily than now, we had admitted the child to the ward. In those days, there was no such thing as uh, admissions units or assessment units. It was straight either send home from AD or admit to one of the general wards. So the baby was admitted to the ward. And I'll be honest, I didn't hear much more about her all night. Next morning, I went to see her again just before the post-receiving round, and one of the nurses was sitting with Sarah on her knee and feeding, and I asked how she'd been, and the nurse said, well, she's not too bad, a little bit quiet, but she's taking her milk okay. But then she followed up, and she said, but there was one very strange thing. I, I bathed her before I-, I started to feed her, and she didn't move her legs. She was lying in the bath water, she wasn't kicking, she wasn't taking any sort of movements at all, but below the waist, and it just seemed not right. And so I examined her, and um, to my surprise and almost a bit almost horror, discovered that this baby indeed had a very significant weakness of both lower limbs. Now, Obviously, this provoked a whole series of investigations over the next few days. And to cut a long story short, it was discovered this baby was suffering from polio, poliomyelitis. Now, polio in the 1980s was obviously almost unheard of because of vaccination. And when we went into the history in a bit more detail, sure enough, 10 to 14 days before the child was admitted, she'd had polio vaccine. And in actual fact, subsequent analysis of the um of the the virus that caused this illness showed it to be a vaccine related polio now obviously this was a an absolute tragedy for for, for sarah um she moved f- after after the diagnosis was established she moved on to a spe- onto the specialist neurological unit and um i think there was some recovery but it certainly was was It certainly um, is a a baby who I remember very well, even many years later, and it it makes the case very well that uh, although a lot of what we do is very useful, on occasions things can go wrong no matter how careful the treatment or management is. I think it would be fair to say that uh, back in the 1950s, there were around seven thousand cases a year of polio. By the nineteen eighties, there was almost no wild polio around, and the vaccine that was used at that time, which was a live vaccine, caused around two cases of vaccine-related polio every year in the UK. So, no one can deny that changing from seven thousand annual cases to two cases a year is a huge success. But um, it certainly wasn't a success for Sarah and her mother, and. Uh, dealing with that was not one of the easiest days or weeks of my career.
0: Thanks, Alan. That was obviously a really tricky and challenging case. And I guess it it's one of the things we always have to think about as doctors, isn't it? We're having to constantly think about the risks of what we might either use to treat or prescribe or recommend, but also recognizing the benefits of it and trying to ensure that There is always more benefit than there is risk, and clearly for this child, the risk outweighed the benefit, but for the vast majority of children, it's the other way around, isn't it?
1: It is indeed, and um, it's always very easy to look at it in number number terms and look at the statistics, but it's always really important to remember that um, behind those statistics, there are individuals and For the individual who is adversely affected, no matter how rare, um, it's an absolute tragedy. And we obviously have to do our utmost to to, to make sure they have the best treatment and best management.
0: I think that's one of the things that always sticks with you, doesn't it? You, You never forget the things that haven't gone as well as you wish they had. At this point I'd like to tell you a little bit about polio. Polio is caused by a virus which is transmitted either from the poo or from droplets that are coughed or sneezed out by a person who is infected by the polio virus. Many people who got polio were completely unaware of it and had very little in the way of symptoms, but some people would become unwell with symptoms such as headache, sore throat, tummy pain, achy muscles or just generally feeling unwell. The virus would enter the bowel from the mouth, and then could spread into the bloodstream and subsequently to the brain or spinal cord. This was where the most serious consequences of polio virus occurred. The virus can attack nerve cells either in the spine or at the base of the brain, and this can cause severe muscle weakness, including weakness of the muscles which are used for breathing. Characteristically, people with polio presented with weakness in their legs, but if there was involvement of the nerves involved in breathing, then mechanical ventilation would be required. Some of you may even remember the pictures of people being ventilated with the so-called iron lung. The weakness was very severe initially, but most people improved, although many people were left with permanent muscle weakness. Unfortunately, before the development of vaccines, many people died from polio every year. Polio vaccine was first introduced in the 1950s. Prior to that in the UK, nearly 8,000 people a year would develop polio that was paralytic, and around 750 people would unfortunately die. Following introduction of the polio vaccine, there was a dramatic fall in the number of cases occurring every year. The last case of so-called wild polio in the UK occurred in 1984. Unfortunately, between 1985 and 2002, there were a total of around 30 cases of polio caused by the vaccine itself. At that time, the vaccine used a live, but weakened version of the poliovirus, which could, very rarely, cause polio infection. In 2002, the live, weakened vaccine was discontinued, and vaccine-induced polio no longer occurs. As a result of polio vaccination, polio has been almost eradicated from most of the world, although there are still a few countries in which wild polio still occurs. Polio vaccination, as with all the vaccines we've benefited from, has therefore been extremely beneficial and saved the lives of many individuals. I think you've got uh, another child that you remember well as well from that era that our listeners would probably be interested to hear about, and I'd be keen for you to to tell me a little bit more about that child as well.
1: Yes, there was another child that I, I remember very clearly, this little chap called James. Um, he wasn't, James wasn't somebody that I looked after personally, but um, I became very aware of his management in the in passing. In those days, there were no such thing as uh, intensive care specialists. Um, when a child was in intensive care, He was looked after by whichever team had admitted him and whichever team was responsible for for, for his full management. And so as medical registrars, we were often in the intensive care unit. I was aware one day of a child in the intensive care unit who had had fairly complex cardiac surgery carried out. And... There, there was a, a gathering of doctors and nurses around the nurses' desk, and there was a fairly animated conversation when I arrived. And animated conversation was related to the fact that the child who had had the surgery carried out had Down syndrome. Now, this was in the mid nineteen eighties. I, I should add, and at that time, conventional wisdom, I think it would be fair to say, was that if a child with Down syndrome had complex cardiac defects, then almost always surgery was not thought to be appropriate. Um, The reason being that um, either the outcome would be very poor and that the, the child was being subjected to surgery and without any real benefit to inverted commas, quality of life, close inverted commas. Now that was the conventional wisdom and the fact that this child who was seven or eight months old, um, the fact he'd had, had been subjected to this surgery was causing a little bit of angst among among some of the staff. Um, you know, why were the surgeons doing this? What was the purpose of doing this? Um, surely this was just making the poor James suffer unnecessarily. And that there were, although that was I think undoubtedly the majority opinion, and I think like most people, because that's the way I'd been trained, I thought along the same lines. There were a couple of people who were brave enough to go against the flow and uh, say, well, actually, was it not right to go ahead? Why should, just because James had Down syndrome, why shouldn't he be given the chance of repair surgery and and to be allowed to be given the chance of, of living a normal life? And although at the time um m I, I didn't I d I didn't agree with 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 this with this line, it was enough to make me to make me think and I went away and um it troubled me really for quite a while afterwards because when I say troubled me, it was because it was making me question what I'd taken as sort of fairly standard practice and conventional wisdom. Now I think it would be fair to say that since the nineteen eighties attitudes have changed quite dramatically. And uh, nowadays, of course, um, no one would think twice about operating on on any child with complex heart disease and uh, whether they had Down syndrome or not, it wouldn't really come into the the equation. I remember later on, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, by which time I'd Left pediatrics as a career. I was working as a as a GP in the, in the streets of Glasgow, and as a GP, I met a number of children with with Down syndrome. And obviously, when I met these children, I became very aware of the the joy and the the love that they gave to their families, and um, how they were very much part of the, the family like any other child. And that there was one child in particular I remember who had his uh, large scar in the middle of his chest from the surgery that he'd had carried out a year or two previously in the in the mid '90s, because at that point surgery was, you know, much more standard care. And, and I remember it, it troubled me even then, thinking that, gosh, if uh, if I had had the same attitude in the '90s as I had in the '80s, then. According to my beliefs, the, the child would never have had his surgery and he wouldn't be running around my consulting room um, giving hugs and kisses every five minutes, which, as he was prone to do, I think it makes the the case very well that what was standard practice years ago is far from standard practice nowadays. And obviously, it makes you think, you know, were we wrong back in those days? So what? made us think in, in that way, which we would now re- regard as being completely in a, in a, inappropriate.
0: And did you ever come to a conclusion about that?
1: When I think of the way our attitudes were in those days, we all thought we were acting in, in the best interest of the child, or we were thinking in the best interest of the child. But that these thoughts were very clearly misplaced. When we think back to the 80s, there were two things. First, both you and I back then, although we had a lot of responsibility, we were very young. We were in our um, mid to later 20s. In my in my case, I'd gone straight from school to medical school, into hospital life. I had no other wider experience of life. And... Um, I very much took what the the attitudes which I'd learned and had been taught were, to my mind at that time, correct. And it was only as I got older that uh, you start to question more whether conventional wisdom really is wisdom. And I think as you you get older, you you, you do start to to think more carefully about your, your attitudes.
0: I think one of the interesting things now, Alan, is that although the situation is clear, perhaps for certain conditions such as Down syndrome, where as you say, nobody would think twice about offering surgery. I still find myself in a situation where I might have arguments with colleagues, for example, in the intensive care unit, when a child with severe neurodisability, perhaps of a different cause, comes in. And the view is that that child oughtn't to be offered intensive care. My view has been very much that it's not what the underlying problem is that causes the neurodisability, but whether or not the treatment that's being offered has a likelihood of being successful. And I think that's an attitude that although things have moved on, it's it's still not fully embedded. And I think what you're saying is that we've realized that cardiac surgery for children with Down syndrome is successful and it makes a big difference. I think, sadly, we've still got a bit of a way to go. But I think the interesting thing is that it took us quite a lot of time to to get to that point, didn't it, really?
1: It it certainly did. And um, although the thinking about James at at the time, as I say, the, the conversation that we had in intensive care that day, was probably just the starting point for me, examining my my thoughts and my attitudes and uh, how, how I looked on children and adults with, with with both learning disabilities and disabilities of any sort. And that very much um, changed and matured all th- throughout my career. And I think particularly the advantage of uh, as a, as a general practitioner was that uh, I was able to see these people at home in the home surroundings with their family around them and that is a completely different attitude and it's a completely different picture that you necessarily get when you're just seeing the child either in a hospital consulting room or as is often the case in an emergency situation in A&E or particularly in a um an intensive care unit where you, you don't see the background you, you you don't see the as i say the 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 joy the standard of life that the the quality of life that that the the child or disabled adult has um on, on a day to day basis
0: And I guess that's something where you and I are quite similar, because one of the benefits of working in neurology is that opportunity to see people not just when they're sick, but when they're well as well. And I think that that's the thing that really solidifies one's understanding of the importance of looking at the individual and not looking at the condition.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I I think really the The importance of looking at individuals as individuals uh, is demonstrated by both these cases we 're talking about the Sarah with her vaccine related polio and James with his Down syndrome and complex heart disease. It would be very easy to write one child off as a statistical anomaly and the the other as you know due to an underlying learning disability to just assume that he's not, that he doesn't have the quality of life that would, would, would merit full medical intervention at all times. Uh, but yet, when you actually know these people as individuals and know their individual backgrounds and uh, learn about them as people, you have, it, it brings home the importance of, of dealing with with people as individuals rather than as their diagnostic label.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, how things like that do make you think about the way we behaved and the way we thought in the past, isn't it?
1: It's very easy to look back on on not just medical decisions, but decisions that people made in other areas of life many years ago and uh, look at them through the, the lens of 2020. Things were in the past were different um, people's attitudes were different not just with doctors but with society in general and we must also we must always be i think be very careful about leaping to judgments about decisions that people made with the information that they had available at the time
0: I hope you've enjoyed this slight change to the podcast. I certainly enjoyed talking to Alan and I hope you've learned lots from the conversation that we've had. I've certainly been struck by the changes that have happened over the last 30 or 40 years. But I think one of the things that must never change is our understanding that children are individuals and we should always see the child and not their underlying problem. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast and you're able to do so, I'd be really grateful if you could rate and or review the podcast on your podcast provider. I look forward to talking to you next time. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode where I'll be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye.